for my voice. I've had some allergy trouble this week, so please bear with me. Pastor Don is away on study retreat, and he's preparing for the fall sermon series, which will begin next week. Uh, For those of you who were here last week, you know that he gave sort of a summary conclusion of Hebrews chapter 11, which has been our study uh, for the bulk of this summer. And while I thought it was was so excellent to to draw that series to a close and to point us to Christ once again, uh, maybe we can consider this sermon something of an epilogue uh, to that sermon as we return to Hebrews chapter 11 once again. And the study this morning is uh, yet another important figure in biblical history, and like many others on this list that we've been studying, not one that you would particularly expect to find on a list of people commended for their faith. And uh, this person is the only woman on the list mentioned of her own accord. Sarah is mentioned on the list in conjunction with the promises given to Abraham. Uh, But this woman uh, is spoken of on her own, and I think there's some significance to that, as well as her placement within the chapter. And of course, that person is Rahab, the prostitute. Now, to properly understand her commendation in Hebrews 11, uh, we'll begin in Joshua chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to Joshua chapter 2. This is the first time we meet Rahab in Scripture. Uh, Just to set the scene a little bit before we get into the story, uh, the Lord had used Moses to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they had come to the edge of the promised land. And when they were at the edge of the promised land, God commanded that they send spies into the land to check things out, scope it out, see what was going on. And those spies returned back, with the majority of them reporting that it was too dangerous to go in. There were giants in the land, and it was not worth the risk for them to go in and fight to take the land that God had promised to them. Well, needless to say, God was not pleased with their lack of faith, and so 40 years they wandered the wilderness, and that generation, including Moses for other reasons, died off. And so now Joshua has assumed control of the army, and once again he has them at the edge of the land, and once again they're going to send spies into the land see what is going on, to see what the Lord has prepared for them. So that's essentially where we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 2, so if you follow along with me. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went, and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. I'll pause there for a moment. So this sets our scene. The spies have gone into the land. Now, there's not a whole lot of specificity about the first time the spies went into the land, but here we're told they went to the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Now, why would they go to a prostitute if they're entering to spy out the fortifications of the land? Well, I think there's a few reasons. One, it's clear that she had her own home. Uh, As it shows up later, the home was in the wall of the city. And so there's, you know, some some strategic uh, planning there. But also, it would have been a place that was open to anyone, especially travelers. And there would have been no questions asked about their identity or where they were going. And it was a place they could stay into the night. So there's a bit of strategy going on here. They're going to go into the prostitute's house, they're going to stay the night, they're going to scope out the land, and they're going to go report back. So they think they're safe up to this point. But as we continue in verse 2, we see that it's not the case. 
The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. So now the mission's a failure, okay? They've gone strategically to this place. They think they'll be undercover and immediately they're found out. We don't know how word got back to the king. Uh, all that we need to know is that it did and that now they're in trouble. And it's interesting if you've ever thought about uh, the spy game, the spy business, if you watch spy movies. Uh, my wife and I have been watching a TV show about George Washington's spy ring. And the life that these people live is incredibly dangerous. They're constantly putting their lives at stake to get information back across enemy lines. And most likely, most countries, uh, the penalty for espionage or for treason, as we'll see in a moment, is death. So any spy that is caught spying and any person caught harboring spies uh, is, is likely to be executed. So not only are the spies in danger, but now Rahab's in danger as well because they know that they're staying with her. So she has a couple of options. What is she going to do? Verse 4. The woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yeah, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they came from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went, but if you go after them quickly, you might catch up with them. But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So now Rahab has drawn a line. So she had a couple of options. She could have turned them over to the king of Jericho, in, in which she would have been exonerated, she would have been fine, and the spies likely would have been executed. But instead, she decides to side with the spies. And it's interesting because we don't really have uh, an explanation at this point. All we see is that she's done this thing, putting her life at risk, and, and there's really no explanation for it so far. And not only does she hide the spies, but she lies to the king's officials. And not only does she lie to them sort of in a passive way that she doesn't know anything, she actually sends them on a wild goose chase so that they have to leave the city. And so we see that Rahab acts on the side of the Israelites. And so we think, well, she must have a good reason for doing that. Thankfully, she does. Verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So this is Rahab's confession of faith. But what's interesting about the story is that her actions precede her statement of faith. So if we're, if we're just reading, following along in the story, her actions are totally inexplicable until we get to this section and we understand the motive for why she does what she does. And she gives two reasons. One, she says, I know the Lord has given this land to you. Now, how did she know that? Well, the report had gotten back that uh, the Israelites had 
had, they had had the sea parted for them, and that they had defeated everyone else in their wake thus far. And so uh, she acknowledges that, yeah, Jericho, my city, is about to become your city. And the thing that we think we own, this plot of land, is about to become yours. Not only that, but at the very end, she makes a very important pronouncement. She acknowledges the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And as you can see, Lord there, uh, in most Bibles, is in all caps. That's his name. That's not his title. That's Yahweh or Jehovah. And so she recognizes that Jehovah or Yahweh, the God of Israel, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now back then, most nations had their God sort of tied to their ethnicity. So every nation had their own God. And usually that God had something of a limited purview. So maybe uh, a nation had the God of fertility as their main God. Or another nation would have the sun God as their main God. What Rahab is recognizing here is that the God of Israel is God of heaven and earth. Now think back to Genesis chapter 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. That's really just a poetic way of saying he created everything. There is no limit to this God's authority, to his sovereignty. And she recognizes that. And not only that, uh, in those days, with each nation having their own God, battles that were fought were something of a, a fatalistic exercise. People thought, well, okay, we're going to go out to battle against these other people, but really the battle is being fought among the deities. And whichever deity wins, that's going to determine who wins the battle between us. But she doesn't operate that way. Rahab doesn't think, well, I'm going to stick to my people and my uh, idols regardless of what the truth is, regardless of what the circumstances I see around me. She recognizes that the God of Israel is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And so they have similar responses. There's, there's two responses, but they're very similar. The first response to this message about God, the God of Israel, is from the people of Jericho. They're afraid. And they're afraid that they are going to have the same fate as Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites who were completely destroyed. And they know that uh, the power that the God of Israel has demonstrated by opening the Red Sea, he could exert that same power on them. And so they're afraid. But their fear leads them to double down on their defenses. So they fortify the walls. They root out the spies. They shut up the gates. They do every, humanly speaking, every wise thing you can do to prepare for battle. But it doesn't lead them to worship the one true God. Rahab, on the other hand, is also afraid. And we'll see that in a moment. But her fear leads to repentance. Her fear leads to her hiding the spies, lying to the authorities, and negotiating for her salvation. She knows there's only one way out, one possible way out. That's what we'll see in verses 12 and 13. So she's acknowledged who God is, and now she says, Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. So she has a genuine fear of death. She recognizes that this army that's coming up against us, regardless of whether the spies report back accurate information or not, because God is God over everything, he's going to wipe us out. There's going to be destruction. 
but rather than proudly sticking to her way of life, she humbly submits and tries to make a deal. Now, at this point, she doesn't have any guarantee that the God of Israel is a merciful God, but she knows that if she's going to be saved, she only has one place to turn, and that's exactly what she does. Now turn over a page to chapter 6 in Joshua, and we'll see sort of the outcome. Most of you are probably familiar with the story, but I think it's worth uh, going through and reading the verses once again. Joshua chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 17 and then 20 through 25. Now the city, this is the command of Joshua, the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. That means completely destroyed. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies that we sent. Verse 20. And when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath that you made to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. So we see that Joshua followed through on his promise. And essentially, by committing treason against her own people, what Rahab was doing was swearing allegiance to the God of Israel. That's essentially what her act of faith was all about. Now, as an aside, uh, we don't have time this morning to get into uh, what is often described as the Canaanite genocide, in other words, what was taking place with these battles. If you have any questions on that, please feel free to talk to myself or to Pastor Doug after one of the services. But suffice to say, for our purposes, the faith that Rahab displayed, an acknowledgement of the Lord's sovereignty, and a confidence in the yet unseen destruction of her city, merits mention in Hebrews chapter 11. So turn with me back now to Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll see her commendation for the faith that she displayed. Now, keep in mind that up to this point in the chapter, as we've been studying this summer, uh, there are eight others who have been mentioned by name, and they all sort of follow the same pattern. So by faith, so-and-so did such-and-such. That's kind of the pattern. Every person that's mentioned follows that same pattern. But after Rahab, in verse 32, the author says, what more shall I say? Now, it's possible that he just kind of ran out of time and he wanted to scratch some things down. But I think more strategically, it's that by the time he gets to Rahab, he's made his point. So there's something about Rahab that serves almost like a rhetorical climax to this whole chapter. And once he gets to that climax, the point that he's been trying to make, now he begins to wind it down from there. And so we read in the verse itself, in uh, chapter 11, verse 31, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, because she welcomed the spies, 
was not killed with those who were disobedient. So the main thing that we see in this verse itself, associated with Rahab, is that she was not destroyed, or she was not killed, rather, is what the the translations say. Most English translations have either she was not killed or did not perish. But the root word there is actually the same, uh, literally means was not destroyed with those who were disobedient. And so if you turn back a page to chapter 10, verse 39, the thing that sets up the whole argument in chapter 11 is uh, really 32 to 39, but we're going to look at verse 39 of chapter 10. The author says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. And then he begins, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So there's a connection between destruction and what is yet unseen. You see that? Verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed because we're people of faith who believe, who are certain of what we do not see. There's a connection there. And so when we think about the original readers of this letter, it's pretty evident from all that we've studied that the original readers of this letter wanted to turn back to Judaism. According to everything they could see in their present situation, that seemed to be the way to go. In the Roman Empire, Judaism was an approved religion. Uh, They could have lived peacefully. We know from earlier in chapter 10 that these people had their their property taken from them. Uh, Some of them were beaten and persecuted in other ways. So just based on what you can see, the logical choice is go back to Judaism. God had already made promises to the people of Israel, and that included some of the, the tabernacle and the temple rituals that they did, sacrifice and whatnot. That's the safe way to go, so maybe that's what we should do. But as the author's pointing out, the destruction for that way of living is yet unseen. And so the author is trying to convince them, you may not now see it, but anyone who does not believe in Jesus alone and commit to him alone, apart from any old covenant ritual, apart from any other religious or superstitious practices, whoever commits to someone other than Jesus alone will be destroyed. So be assured that this destruction is coming and, it, and you'll hold fast to your faith even if it costs you in the short term. So uh, we might be thinking at this point, okay, that's them and then. Most of us in this room in Lansing, Michigan on September 3rd are not contemplating uh, converting back to Judaism. So what does this have to do with us? I'm glad you asked. Three things, and if you're following along in the handout uh, in the worship folder, uh, we're going to look at sort of a big idea And then we're going to work backwards from there. So the big idea that we can glean from this story is that God saves people who live out their faith regardless of their personal history. We'll start with the last part of that statement. God is pleased by faithful people regardless of their personal history. Now Rahab was a prostitute. And it's interesting because only one time is she mentioned in, well, actually twice. Once in Joshua, but once in the New Testament where she's not mentioned as the prostitute. But every other time, she's mentioned that way. She's explicitly described as Rahab the prostitute. Now, when you're reading the Bible, uh, whenever there's an identification made about somebody, it's usually significant for some reason or another. And I think this one is especially significant. 
Because as we think about our own lives, some of us in this room, maybe you've been in church for a long time even, you might be thinking, surely God cannot love me. Surely God doesn't know my deepest, darkest sins. And if he did, then you tremble at the thought of the shame that you would experience were you to be exposed. Or maybe your sins aren't quite as blatant, but maybe they're a little more subtle. So instead of having sex in exchange for money, lust has simply run wild in your mind and on your computer screens. Maybe you haven't murdered anybody in cold blood, but there are certain people in the world that you hate just enough where you wouldn't mind if somebody else did. Maybe you haven't created a devious web of lies, but you're so consumed with your personal image that you often omit the truth to make yourself look better. And you fear people more than you fear God. So as we look at our personal histories, and all of us can identify with this in one way or another, our personal histories are pretty ugly. And we know that Rahab's was ugly as well. She was a prostitute. But I think about the purpose of why she's referred to as a prostitute, and why, why is it important that we think about where we've come from. Well, I think about John Newton, the slave ship captain turned pastor who wrote Amazing Grace, probably the most famous hymn in Western Christianity. I think sometimes we, we sing that song, and because it's so familiar, we just kind of sing through the words, and it's just a familiar tune, and we're kind of jiving with it. But think about the very first line. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I think if we stop there, we have to acknowledge that unless you understand your wretchedness, grace will never be amazing to you. So are we familiar with our own wretchedness? Do we really examine our lives? Do we examine the motives of our hearts to see what it is that we are really all about? And some of us, again, would be quite ashamed if we were exposed for what our hearts are really like. But when you come to the place of conviction, when you come to the place of recognizing that my sin is ugly and I ought to be ashamed of it, and especially before God, I ought to be ashamed of it, don't let that thought stop there. Keep going. It's often possible for us, even as Christians, to want to fortify our defenses. So like the people of Jericho, rather than humbly submitting to the word of God and to the fellowship of the church that he's given us, we want to defend ourselves. We, we get into self-righteous mode. We think, I'm not really that bad. Like, let me compare myself to this other person over here. They're far worse than I am. But we forget that God's grace has covered our sin and our shame. And by confessing it, he covers it for us. Jesus died for our sins. And the shame that we feel or that we ought to feel about our sin, he took on himself on the cross. That's the message of the gospel. The shame from our personal histories ought not derail us from coming clean with God because God has covered our sins by Jesus' death. But the benefits of his death are only for those who have committed to him by faith. So to use Spurgeon's analogy, faith is like a conduit. And the conduit links up with the flowing water of the grace of God. And when we hitch our conduit to God's grace, that is when we experience salvation. Faith, just in and of itself, you know, we 
our culture talks a lot today about faith without really defining it, without really attaching an object to the faith. They just talk about faith. But faith is like an empty conduit. It's not really useless, or it's not really useful for much. But you attach that conduit to the grace of God in Christ, and now you have a, a river of blood that washes over all of your sins and makes you clean. That is how faith works. When it lays hold of Christ, it receives the washing of his blood. Rahab was indeed a prostitute, but she is praised for her faith because her faith in God and his grace have covered over her former sins. So God is pleased when people have faith regardless of what their personal history is like. The second thing we learn is that true faith in the unseen God will change how we act in tangible or seen ways. So for Rahab, she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. So attaching our faith to God, uh, to Jesus, will not allow us to remain in sin. It'll change how we act. And we've seen this time and time again in our study of Hebrews 11, that faith leads to obedience. And like we saw in Joshua chapter 2, it was actually the obedience that preceded an explanation of belief. So right away, instantaneously, faith acts itself out. It doesn't stay hidden in our hearts. And as we've seen throughout Hebrews 11, he's actually kind of making the same argument that James makes in James chapter 2, which, interestingly enough, is also where Rahab is mentioned as an example of faith. She's a person who didn't just say, I believe that God is who he says he is, and now I'm going to remain in my sin in allegiance with the people of Jericho who have rebelled against him. She says, I know who God is, and I'm going to change my behavior as a result of that. I'm going to hitch my wagon to him because that's who can actually provide salvation. And so as we think about our own lives, how would you finish this sentence? Because I believe that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, I blank. How would you finish that sentence? Based on looking at your past, as your life as a Christian, and thinking about the week coming up, how would you finish that? Would it be, I listen to his word, I spend time with him, I make decisions based on his priorities and purposes, I strive to eradicate sin in my life, I fear him more than I fear other people, I persevere in the face of persecution? There are a number of other answers that you could give, but we have to be able to, to finish that sentence. If we start the sentence, because I believe that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, I, and there's no answer, there's no end to the sentence, then we have to examine our hearts and say, do we really believe that? Because it ought to affect the way we live. Or perhaps more pertinent to this story, maybe think of a different sentence. Because I believe that Jesus is coming back and will bring his wrath on everyone who does not believe in him, I blank. If I really believe that there is a destruction coming that is yet unseen, how is that changing the way that I live? Maybe I eagerly share the message of salvation with others, family members, friends, neighbors. Maybe I pray regularly for the people in my life. Maybe the doors are all closed at this point. You've tried sharing and the doors are just closed. It's not there. Do you pray for those people consistently? I know that's where I often fail myself. Do I seek out new relationships with non-Christians so that I can have opportunity to share with them? This is an urgent message. Destruction really is coming. 
And maybe for most of us, we say, well, most of the people I know are Christians. But how am I being intentional to seek out relationships with non-Christians so that I might share this message? Am I doing that? And if not, I need to examine my heart. Do I really believe what the Bible says is going to happen? And so again, the hard reality that connects Rahab's situation with ours is that our city is facing destruction as well. And that brings us to the third thing. God saves those who have faith but destroys those, those who do not. And so the, the Bible explicitly says that Rahab was not destroyed with those who were disobedient, meaning those who were disobedient were destroyed. We don't often like to think of God's wrath. Uh, it's not one of the more pleasant uh, topics that we discuss in church. But I think it's crucial that we think about it. It's crucial that we keep words like this in mind. Uh, a smattering of verses from Hebrews kind of put together in a logical order. 13, 14, he says, Here we have no lasting city. Meaning, if we're living all just for the here and now, to build our own little kingdoms in our own little corner of the world, to achieve fame for ourselves, to be well-known and well, uh, to be reputable in our communities, if that's all we're giving our lives to, it's not going to last. Here we have no lasting city. In 927, he says, man is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. Meaning everything we do, we're studying Ecclesiastes in our Sunday school class, and it says everything we do, whether in public or in secret, is going to be judged by God. That's what gives it meaning. Now, some of that we might recoil at. We think, oh man, God's judgment, it's all about his wrath. But if you're living righteously and wisely and sacrificially according to the word of God, then God will judge you faithful. God's judgment is actually a positive thing. You know, we all love the well-done, good and faithful servant. That's a judgment of God, a pronouncement upon a person's life. But, again, as we think about those in our lives uh, who don't know him, in 1031 we read, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because God's judgment on those who do not have faith is not going to be good. In 1229, we read, our God is a consuming fire. So if we're to live by faith, we have to reckon with those truths. We believe that there is a destruction that is yet unseen. We don't see it. Nobody else sees it yet. But we are certain that it is coming because God's word says it's coming. Now, how is that faith going to change the way we live? And as we think about the message that we bear and the hope that we have, we ought to be joyful in some sense. So think about what he says in 1228. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So he says, here we have no lasting city, but God is preparing a city for us. He's preparing a city that's not going to be destroyed, that's not going to be shaken. And in the context, shaken means destroyed. We're receiving a kingdom that is going to last. In 2.9, we read about Jesus. It says, by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. Meaning, again, that those who have faith can avoid destruction because Jesus has suffered that punishment for them. He's tasted death for them. And by the will of God, it says in chapter 10, verse 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ once for all. So for those who are part of his kingdom, we don't repeat the sacrifice. We don't try and offer our own righteousness to God as, as a substitution or as, as a means of atonement. But we know that Jesus has paid that for us once and for all. 
In chapter 9, 24, it says, Christ has entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Chapter 4, now since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need, which includes a lack of faith. And finally, in chapter 13, through Jesus, therefore, let us offer continually to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips who confess his name. So when we think about the faith that saves, we have to ask, what is it that we are being saved from? If we offer somebody the message of salvation, and we don't actually talk about what it is that they're being saved from, that's a justified question in their mind. Why do I need to be saved? What is it that's coming that I'm going to be saved from? We have the answer to that. By faith, we have confidence in what is yet unseen, that the wrath of God is being poured out on all humanity because of sin. But just because we can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't, it's not coming. And just because Rahab couldn't see the destruction of her own city doesn't mean she wasn't certain that it was about to come, and she acted accordingly. So if we live by faith, knowing that it's coming one day, let us be a thankful and persevering people who are on a mission to save others until it comes. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the truth and the clarity of Scripture. And even one of the more uncomfortable topics to think about the destruction of the earth because of our sin, I pray, Lord, that we would reckon with those truths. I pray that our faith would be well-grounded and that we would uh, be able to sustain thinking about those things to the degree that it would change the way that we act and the way that we express our concern for others. So God, help us to be a faithful people. We know that there's no chance of us being perfect here on earth in this life. But we pray for your mercy and grace that you would aid us to be more faithful to you day by day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed. Ha, ha, ha.